Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Dog whistling is designed to trigger racist fears and resentments that almost all of us have, but in a way that allows not just plausible deniability on the part of the politician, but that allows those people stampeded by these fears to reassure themselves that they're not racist. Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So we don't have all of the information we wish we had on the election. Exit polls are not reliable. If you currently see punditry being done on exit polls, ignore it. They are simply not validated enough to take anything useful from them. But looking at county level data, something we can say with some certainty is that Donald Trump significantly improved his margins among Hispanic voters and Joe Biden importantly improved his margin among white voters. And that is a real violation of the macro narrative of American politics over the past four years, where it's been understood, taken on faith, um, and definitely like driven home in the political arguments that Donald Trump is a xenophobe who uses fear of immigrants and anti-Hispanic attitudes to increase the support among white voters. So it is a good moment to look at that narrative, look at what it may have missed, look at what we may have learned about it. And a great person to do that with is Ian Haney Lopez. He is a Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at Berkeley. Um, he's a director of the Racial Politics Project at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. He's the author of Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. He's a founder of the Race Class Academy. And all of those accolades and all those positions are to say he's done tremendous amounts of theoretical, historical, and then survey level work on trying to understand, in particular, how political messaging affects the voting patterns of different racial blocks, what it even means to talk about different races and different racial blocks, whether or not we talk about them correctly or with any level of rigor in American politics. And he, in the past couple of years, has begun to move from a space of the theoretical to a space of the practical, doing a lot of work, trying to actually test messages among different groups, trying to understand what they said. He had some very prescient warnings for the Democrats before the election, and this had some, and has had some really good analysis since it. So I'm glad he was able to come on the show. As always, my email, EzraKleinShowAtBox.com. Here is Ian Haney-Lopez. Ian Haney-Lopez, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Very glad to join you. So what do we actually know about the Hispanic vote in 2020? What's the best data we have and what does it show? What we know is people are shocked that Latinos did not vote as a monolith understood simply as people of color who repudiate a politician who campaigns on racism, much of it racism against Latinos themselves. 
that's what we know. We can look in at specific numbers. We can say something like three in 10 Latinos voted for Donald Trump, about 6% more among men, more among Cuban Americans uh, in Miami, some surprising results from South Texas. On the other hand, strong progressive turnout in Arizona. There's lots and lots of details. But the core takeaway for most people is this sudden, oh my God, Latinos aren't a monolith. We can't understand them simply as people of color. We can't expect that as people of color, they will vote overwhelmingly to reject a politician who himself often trades in anti-Latino racism. So what do you think the size of the swing was? I've seen the data analyst David Shore say that Trump increased his share of Latino vote by as much as 12 points. I've seen Nate Cohn from The New York Times suggest it could be up in the double digits. Does that sound right to you in terms of magnitude? That sounds high to me. I I don't think it'll end up being that high. It was probably somewhere around one in four in 2016, so 25%, probably something like three in 10 in 2020. Uh, So maybe a five or six point increase. There's a way in which if you focus on the details, if you focus on the numbers, you end up focusing on the margin. Like who else shifted and why did they shift? Whereas the larger point, the more important point is here's somewhere between a quarter and a third of Latinos voting for a candidate, a, a, a president who described Mexican-Americans as rapists, uh, described Central American countries as shitholes, tore families apart at the border, installed as head of immigration, somebody who is essentially a white nationalist in his perspective with respect to immigrants and in particular immigrants from Latin America. And yet, one in four, 25%, maybe one in three, is the magnitude of it overall that is so important rather than what, you know, what, what was the marginal shift? So as you say, the, the dominant liberal narrative about Donald Trump is he's a xenophobe and a bigot and a racist who attacks non-white people and attacks immigrants as a way of increasing his support among the white electorate. And then what happens in this election, and I know here I'm focusing a bit on the margin, is he increases support with Hispanic voters, he increases potentially some support with African-American voters, and we're not exactly sure on that one, and loses, crucially, some support among white voters. So as you say, the, the, the narrative has been quite profoundly violated here. So, so what did liberals get wrong in this? Let me back up for a second, because the new liberal intuition is itself an important advance, and, and I don't want to seem to undercut it. If we backtrack to 2008 or 2012, it was very difficult to convince liberals that racism was being wielded as a divide-and-conquer weapon by the Republican Party, that dog-whistling was their primary strategy to attracting voters, that it had been a strategy started in the 1960s, firmly embraced in 1970. And from Richard Nixon's landslide win in 72 through Reagan and both Bush presidencies, Mitt Romney's campaign, they were all centrally rooted in dog whistling. It was very hard to convince liberals that that was what was happening. So then you get to 
Donald Trump entering the race in 2015 and really wiping the field in terms of the other Republican uh, candidates during the primaries and then going on to win. And all of a sudden, liberals say Donald Trump is using race to mobilize his base. Bravo. Glad you recognized it. Yes, of course, important to recognize also, not just Donald Trump. This is a 50-year pattern that Trump studied and purposefully built on. Let, let me push you on just a piece of this that I think people are going to wonder about. When you say, when you draw a straight line from Nixon, Reagan, okay, I get that, to George W. Bush, who had a very different attitude towards Hispanic and, and uh, African-American voters, really tried on something like immigration reform, John McCain, somewhat similar, Mitt Romney, who I would not say ran a campaign based primarily on dog whistling. I'm not saying this is not a long-term strategy in, in American politics, but Donald Trump represented a break and uh, an attack on certain parts of the Republican Party that wanted to moderate in their rhetoric here, where it seems to me that you're, you're, you're creating a very straight lineage. Here's the through line. Starting with Barry Goldwater in the 60s and then with Richard Nixon transforming Barry Goldwater's strategy into the Southern strategy and then into a national strategy and realizing how potent it is. Republicans essentially unleashed a monster that they could not control. And they've had different orientations to it. But that has been the monster they've been riding, but that has also itself consumed and transmogrified the Republican Party. So if we think about Nixon, who was the liberal Republican, he shifts his policies as he comes to realize that the route to electoral, in a conservative direction, as he comes to realize that the route to electoral success for him is race baiting. And then Ronald Reagan really commits to it as he had as when he was campaigning for governor of California, a welfare queen, war on crime, an imagery of African-Americans as both lazy and violent. And you get up to uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, who was behind in the polls, and then he releases the Willie Horton ad. Now you get to George W. Bush, and by then you've got Karl Rove and you've got W. coming out of Texas, and he's got this this sense that, hey, at a certain point, Republicans are going to lose because demography is changing underneath them, and they need to expand their reach. And so, yeah, W. starts talking about compassionate conservatism and trying to build a bigger tent. Then you get the 9-11 attacks. And all of a sudden, there's a new version of dog whistling that can take place. Not one that primarily targets African Americans, but one that casts the United States as locked into a civilizational struggle with the Muslim world. And it's that war on terror and the rhetoric of the war on terror that becomes the primary form of dog whistling for George W. Bush. Now, the Republican Party itself is not Bush and is not Karl Rove. And so many other candidates begin to pick up on the anti-Latino dog whistling that had succeeded in California in the 80s and 90s. They begin to pick up on it themselves in the 2000s. And it's a, it's an, a, there's a very strong linkage between a war on terror and this nationalization of anti-Latino dog whistling. Because... What happens is you begin to get this story that says we are beset by these foreign people, brown, dangerous culture, mean us harm, invading the country. 
And did it matter that the brown was the brown of the Muslim world or the brown of Latin America? That distinction quickly faded. In fact, Ted Cruz ha had an ad it, it set on the southern border in which he, you know, has a scorpion and, it, and the, the narration says something like, they're coming for us, they mean us harm, they're crossing our borders, none of us are safe. And then he's got his Texas boot and he squashes the scorpion. Is the scorpion Islam? Was that ISIS? Was that illegals, a caravan? Well, it didn't matter. That's the 2000s. And then when you think about McCain or Mitt Romney is probably the better example because Mitt Romney seems like such a nice guy. Okay, well, Mr. Nice Guy spent half his advertising budget promoting ads that falsely tried to tie Barack Obama to welfare. Half, half his campaign budget went to that. McCain, I think, worried about traction ends up selecting Sarah Palin, who is dog whistling big time when she talks about Obama palling around with terrorists, right? He brings in a dog whistle figure to try and mobilize the base. Mitt Romney is spending half his advertising budget trying to tar President Obama's linked with welfare. But at the same time, they're still influenced by this sort of Rovian insight that Demography is changing. We cannot continue to demonize people of color. And, and indeed, that's the, the 2012 autopsy that says we blew it. When, when Mitt Romney talks about people needing to self-deport, he self-deported himself out of the White House. Right? That was the autopsy. Now along comes Donald Trump. The big advantage Donald Trump has is he's willing to fully unleash the monster of dog whistling with no regard to what happens to the institutional credibility of the Republican Party, or even his viability in the general election. Because the, the logic had been, you got to dog whistle pretty loudly to win the primaries, then you got to dial it back to win the generals. Donald Trump never thought he was going to win the general election. He just wanted to win the primaries and run a campaign and increase his name recognition and continue to build his brand. He also didn't care what sort of damage he did to the Republican Party. So he dog whistled with abandon in a way that very quickly drove him to the top of the polls among Republican primary voters. And, and this is what I mean, you know, coming back to this idea of a through line, a monster that they can't control. Put in different terms, the GOP decided that their main strategy for winning elections was going to be demagoguery. And they thought early on that it would be demagoguery that they could control, demagoguery at the margins, as it were. But that exposed each new generation of Republican politicians to another set of primary challengers who were even more demagogic than they were. And that's the through line from the silent majority to the Reagan Democrats, to the Tea Party, to the Trump Republicans, and frankly now to QAnon. Yezra Klanja will be back after a short break. So this is a version, I think, of sort of the broad liberal argument of where the Republican Party has gone. But, but then tell me what happens this year, because the way this argument goes is that the Republican Party, by adopting this demagogic approach to a demographically changing country is alienating non-white voters and increasing its margins uh, among white voters. It's how Donald Trump wins in 2016, more or less. And then in 2020, 
Trump keeps doing that throughout his presidency and he loses some white voters and he picks up some non-white voters very much in violation of, of, of liberal expectations. So what did liberals misunderstand about the politics of this approach? The core misunderstanding is that this is now bullhorn racism and not still dog whistling. That's the core mistake that most liberals are making. So what's happened is that now, you know, in the last five years, as Donald Trump has brought the race baiting to a level that it is easily recognized by liberals who are attentive to politics, including pundits. As he's brought the race baiting to that level, so one, enormously important that most liberal pundits now see that the GOP uses race as a principal strategy for winning elections. So that's terrific. But the mistake has been among many liberal pundits to say, well, now that I can see it, this must be open racism. And it must be open racism that is viewed and interpreted and responded to as naked racism by the American population as a whole. That is, this is no longer dog whistle politics, dog whistle politics being the idea that uh, politicians are simultaneously seeking to trigger racial fears and resentments, and yet doing so in code in a matter that allows them to deny that that's what they're doing in a matter that obfuscates the way in which it's in fact racial, right? So friend after friend says to me, you know, this isn't dog whistle politics anymore. It's a foghorn. It's the shriek of an onrushing train. It's the roar of a jet engine. Everybody must hear this racism because I hear it. But that's not that's not how race works. And that's not, in fact, what's happening with the voting public. And I say this with such confidence because in 2017 and, and then again this past summer, I ran ma major national polling to test these sorts of dog whistle messages, me messages understood as dog whistling by us liberal folks paying attention. And we record very high levels of agreement, not only among Republican voters, among Democratic voters, among union households, among African-Americans, and among Latinos. You can't tell me that majorities of Latinos are listening to a message about deporting illegals and sanctuary cities and fully funding our police and China virus. As 60% of Latinos are saying, I agree with that. They are not saying, I hear that as a message that clearly expresses support for white dominance, and I too support white dominance, and you know that's the way I'm going to vote. That's not what's happening. What's happening is these messages are A, designed to trigger racial fears, but B, expressed in coded language that allows politicians to deny that they're being racist and allows people to deny to themselves that the root of their anxieties and resentments are, are, are tainted by racism. And that, that's the crucial insight that I think most liberals have simply gotten wrong over the duration of the Trump administration, that it stopped being dog whistling and that it started being an obvious foghorn of racism and that everybody could understand it was racism. And so it would be widely repudiated. Why are you confident that the problem for liberals here is that they thought the dog whistle was a foghorn? They thought that the racism was louder than it is, rather than that 
they were wrong about either it being racism or they were wrong about what much of the country understands to be racist. And that actually part of the problem is that liberals are categorizing so much in that bucket that they're turning off a lot of people they claim to be speaking for because they've adopted a definition of racism that is beyond much of the voting public's definition, including among many non-white people. I really hear two different questions there. One question is, how do we know this is racism and, and you know, implied in that question is, and what do we mean by racism? And another question is, and given that it's racism, what's the best way to talk about it with the public? And why have the ways that liberals talked about racism failed so badly seem to, provo to provoke a backlash? Let's separate those two out. We know this is racism. The way you know anything is racism, which is to say, you look at the larger sociological context, you look at the history, you look at the intent to the extent that it can be determined. The main way we know intent is people typically intend the predictable consequences of their actions. And so when you, when you have a party that continually uses frames that trigger racist fears and resentments, talk about welfare queen or gangbangers or rapists or showing the Willie Horton ad, they may turn around and say, what, me racist? No, I you know, don't have a racist bone in my body. But we can impute the intent to produce the results that were entirely predictable from what they did, right? So look, dog whistling is by definition a massive form of gaslighting. Right? Like, like by definition, that's what it is. It is an effort to simultaneously trigger fears and resentments rooted in racist stereotypes. Those people are dangerous and vicious. Those people are lazy. Our people are good, innocent, hardworking. Our people are victims. That's what it is combined with, inseparable from, an effort to deny there's any such thing. Because dog whistling, it emerges out of the civil rights movement. It emerges in a cultural context in which almost everybody in the United States believes racism is an ugly moral offense. So you can't have politicians saying, my goal is to restore white dominance and to kick out or imprison these evil, awful brown and black people. So dog whistling is a massive form of gaslighting, a, a simultaneous effort to trigger racial conflict and racial resentment, and also to deny that it's doing any such thing. So that's how we can look at 50 years of Republican strategizing and Republican denials, including, you know, I mean, I, you know, the howls of outrage from any conservative who actually listens to this interview. Oh, my, they're saying this again. It's these of course, that's, that's, that's part of the theater. But we also know we can trace the history from Goldwater to Nixon to Reagan. We can we we hear the confessions. We see people pursuing policies and and rhetoric with predictable consequences. That's it makes sense to think about this as racism. What sort of racism? Racism takes multiple forms. That's not a surprise. We've got four hundred years of history being structured in terms of a racial hierarchy. Of course, it's going to take multiple forms. And liberals are often very comfortable thinking in terms of interpersonal racism. We might think of that as bigotry. 
or implicit bias, the stereotypes we've internalized, or cultural racism, the way you might describe casting on news shows or in Hollywood, or systemic racism, a very important term, the way in which racial hierarchy becomes institutionalized and then can proceed through inertia. I want to introduce a new term, a new form of racism that we should really learn to recognize, and that is strategic racism. Strategic racism is when people intentionally seek to stoke racial conflict for ulterior motives. And, And you can think of it as a mining company that tries to break a white union by bringing in black scab laborers or what happened in California where this hysteria about Latino immigrants as a way to win votes for Pete Wilson. Well, dog whistling is strategic racism. And and now the people doing it, they may also have other forms of racism. They may also be bigots. Richard Nixon, for example, they actually may be opposed to personal bigotry. They, they, They may genuinely like black folks. Bill Clinton, successfully dog whistled. He was a strategic racist and yet also, I think, personally opposed to racism. He just saw dog whistling as the surest route to winning elections. But but I want to push on I want to push on the last part of my question there because I feel like it's getting missed a little bit. Like does the election results suggest that liberals need to think about maybe the reverse of what you're talking about, unstrategic racism, right? The there has been, as you say, a kind of self-congratulation in the liberal sphere about willing to call Donald Trump a racist, will the New York Times put racist in headlines, will it put liar in headlines, a lot of pushing on this. And part of that idea wasn't just that it was moral, but that there was a, a politics behind it, that you needed to call out what was happening for it to be seen and for it to be rejected. And it seems to have alienated people. And you've done research yourself showing that a lot of non-white voters don't like talking about racism. They don't like this kind of messaging. So have liberals got in themselves, whatever this sort of objective situation is, into a political cul-de-sac here where they've convinced themselves of the way to appeal to a demographically changing and browning America is to become more explicit in calling out racism. And they're actually just wrong about that. Speaking here, not just for white liberals, but all kinds of um, sort of top liberal activists and, 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 and politicians and media figures. 100%. It's important to understand the racial critique. It's important to understand that this is racism. How do we know it's racism? What kind of racism it is? But now we're shifting to this other conversation, which is, okay, so how do you beat it? How do you, how do you respond? How, how do you talk to the American voter about this? And Democrats found out as early as 1970 that it actually backfired when they turned around and said, hey, that's dog whistling and dog whistling's racism. That's that's racist. They tried it with Richard Nixon. They tried it with George Wallace, who was, you know, another infamous dog whistler coming out of the 60s. And it failed. And and it, and here's why it failed. It, it, kind of on two levels. One, remember that dog whistling is very often not heard by people who are moved by it as racism. They're trying to protect themselves. They think racism is wrong. They're trying to protect their self-image. They believe that their concern about law and order or gangs or out-of-control criminals or uh, an immigrant invasion or the need to fully fund the police, they believe that those things are just common sense. 
So when liberals turn around and say, that's not common sense, that's racism, there, there's actually a very strong negative reaction to that to say, I'm not racist. The, the, these, these concerns are legitimate, right? Even though, again, to go back to that earlier conversation, I think it's very important for people to say, actually, in, in our own minds, analytically, to say, actually, no, those, those concerns are highly racialized. They're really rooted in racist stereotypes. So on one level, you're, people think it's common sense, and then they tell them, no, you know, the politician who's telling you that's a racist, and you know, that, that implies that you're supporting a racist, so you're probably a racist too. It shouldn't shock anybody that that's not going to fly. But here's the, here's the deeper insight. The strategy on the right is to shatter social solidarity, to drive the population apart. The principal way, though not the only way, the principal way they're doing this is by stoking conflict between racial groups. And there's also gender and patriarchy and homophobia, but the principal strategy here is to provoke racial group conflict. Now, when the left turns around and says, hey, that's racist, in a striking way, the left is actually reaffirming the right's basic message. The right's basic message is, hey, dear voter, we are locked into a fundamental conflict between whites and people of color. Stand with white people. The left turns around and says, hey, that's racist. And what they've said is, we are indeed locked into a fundamental conflict between whites and people of color. Stand with people of color. That's where the left is running into trouble. You won't be surprised to learn that, hey, when you say to white voters, the problem we're confronting is a, a white racist president beloved by millions of white racists and backed by 400 years of white racism in our society. Reject white racism, do the moral thing, stand with people of color, stand with communities of color. You're not pulling a whole lot of white folks that way. At the same time, what the left is, should, should now see in thinking about the Latino vote, you lose a lot of people that we think of as people of color as well. Because think about the enormity of that ask. You're literally saying to people, stand with the subordinated, stand with the demeaned, stand with the mistreated. You will have a raid against you. The president, 400 years of history, 70 million of your fellow Americans, stand with the defiled. You know, if there's no other way, okay. And I say this because for years as a, as a scholar of racism in American law, that was my position. My position was we must denounce white racism and we're going to turn off a lot of white folks and we're going to struggle to convince many people of color that they should organize their lives as people of color responding to racism and building solidarity with other groups victimized by racism, that was what I was trying to do too. That's what the left is trying to do. It didn't work in 1970. It hasn't worked since. That's part of the lesson. Now, it's really, really important to say that's only one of two principal responses that the broad left has tried. And the second response is, to look at the inability of challenging racism directly and to conclude that therefore you can't discuss racism at all. And so that's this other move, this colorblind left move. It's a move that says, 
wow, if we talk about racism, we're going to alienate a lot of whites and maybe some folks of color. Why don't we stay silent on it? Why don't we talk about the things that appeal to everybody? Um, we can talk about a living wage or health care or the environment. But whatever we talk about, let's never talk about race. That, too, has failed in terms of building the sorts of majorities we need to actually change the country's direction. It's, it's failed. And the reason it's failed is because the right is talking about race. The right is stoking racial anxiety all the time. And it's simply not an effective strategy to say, well, their best weapon is stoking racial anxiety. Let's ignore it. Let's not address it. And, and that's the, when you say the, the, the left or Democrats have themselves in a, in a cul-de-sac, that's the cul-de-sac. That's the, that's the fuller dimensions of it. What is your evidence that that hasn't worked? I know you've done work here. So talk through your, your evidence here a little bit. When you say that hasn't worked, why do you say that hasn't worked? So we wanted to understand how to defeat dog whistle politics. And so one of the things we did is we, uh, just in, in, in 2020, for instance, I ran this big study and we tested a dog whistle message. And as I've mentioned, very popular, including with Latinos and African-Americans. Then we tested what I would call a race left message, where we directly challenged racist politicians and racist policies. That didn't perform well, it, and it, especially among whites. It lost by big margins to the racial fear message. Then we tested a version of the colorblind message, which, to be perfectly frank, I just cribbed from Joe Biden's talking points, right? We'd need a leader with a plan. We need to build back better. We, can, you know, we need to create jobs. But, uh, you know, a sort of a message that never mentioned racial division directly. That message is strong enough to do just what Biden did, which is yeah, among liberal majorities, that wins. And, and if you look at the sort of national vote, you're in good shape. But if you think about the sorts of margins that Democrats need to actually change this country's direction, to take control of Congress, to, to win the Senate, they need to perform very, very well. They can't, can't just aim for 50 plus one. Then we tested different versions of another sort of message. And that's been implicit in what we've talked about. We haven't fully talked about it yet. But it's a message that names racism as a problem, but not white racism, not talking about racism in a way that strengthens the sense that the basic conflict is between whites and people of color, but rather names racism as an intentional strategy to divide working families, to allow politicians and their dark um, money backers to rig the economy for themselves. In other words, we shift the basic conflict in American politics from whites versus people of color to the greedy rich and power elites versus all the rest of us while naming racial division as their main strategy and building cross-racial solidarity as our main route uh, to, to uh, building a new major majority. Those are the messages which were by far the most pop popular. When I think of the, the politicians who use a strategy closest to that, I think of Elizabeth Warren, I think of Bernie Sanders. 
But they didn't outperform Biden in the primary, and I don't believe there is reason to think they would have outperformed him in the general. And politicians like them don't tend to outperform some of the more moderate colorblind style Democrats in red and purple states. Like if you look at the Democrats winning in Colorado, if you look at the Democrats who win in Montana, it doesn't look like that. So who does this well? Like, how do you see what, what is the sort of real world evidence that that approach where you move, you use the race argument and you move it to a populism argument is outperforming the, the colorblind approach in real life conditions? So to be clear, I don't think Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders are appropriate counterfactuals. Elizabeth Warren definitely gets the argument. And there, there are occasions when she, she uses this sort of rhetoric of an intentional divide and conquer. But she largely steered away from it during her primary campaign. Bernie Sanders is a different sort of figure. He has been very strongly on the side of the colorblind left, uh, you know, a very strong economic message. He has believed that what unifies us is the need for economic populism. Uh, he often talks about race, for example, reparations being a distraction. Even when he's challenged to think about communities of color, he very often had answered by saying communities of color will be helped when we get economic populism for everybody, right? As if racism was this sort of vestigial issue that we could address once everybody was fine. And now it's true and important that Bernie Sanders late in the primaries started moving towards saying racial division is a weapon of the rich being used against all of us. And if we want to address racial justice, we must build cross-racial coalitions with whites who are being encouraged to vote for these dog whistle politicians. And if we want economic populism, we must also address the racial division being used to split the working class. He started saying that, but that was at the very end of the primaries. The question about would an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders have done better in 2020, that's huge. But I don't, I don't really think we're in a position to, to answer that sort of a that sort of a hypothetical. There's this moment here, immediately in the wake of the election, that everybody's spinning their favorite story, and it turns out their favorite story is entirely consistent with their favorite story before the election. So the moderates are coming around and saying, progressive lost this for us, and progressives are coming around and saying, if only that we'd been more progressive or the moderates have been more progressive, right? It's very hard to say who would have done what, okay. But one example that we can look to, and I think a very instructive example, is the is the Minnesota example. So there's this lot of struggle. Can we get can we get back Wisconsin? Can we get back Michigan? Well, look at what happens in Minnesota. So in Minnesota, there was a progressive coalition that included labor and faith groups that early in 2017, became interested in the sort of work we were doing using this race-class fusion, using an argument that said, hey, distrust greedy elites who are dividing us, build connections across racial groups, demand that government work for working families. They said, you know, that argument sounds right to us. And so even before we'd fully done our research, they put it into operation on the ground in Minnesota. And it worked so well that the, the, the local Democratic Party ended up adopting that framework, started talking about efforts by the GOP to divide us and to make us fear each other, 
the progressive campaign developed a, a, a very clever slogan. They, 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 their slogan became greater than fear. Brilliant on a couple levels. One, because it really named fear of others as the main threat, but also because it invoked that greater than, where greater Minnesota was the dog whistle for rural Minnesota, for white Minnesota that was supposedly threatened by being displaced, by being disrespected by urban Minnesota, right, by the Twin Cities. So greater than fear. And that campaign in 2018 was very successful in terms of winning uh, statewide offices and also flipping the Minnesota legislature from red to blue. So, So we do have concrete examples of this working at the electoral level. We also have some really compelling evidence coming out of field work being done by groups like People's Action. So People's Action is this umbrella organization. They've got lots of little lots of groups in many different states. Their aim is to compete in rural America. Um, and over the la- over 2020, over the first half of 2020, they ran some am- amazing campaigns combining deep canvassing and this race class approach. So deep canvassing is this approach where you knock on doors and you engage people in conversations for 15 to 25 minutes about what their concerns are. But at the same time, you're you're kind of repeating back to them their concerns through this new lens. And the lens they were using was a race class. We're all in this together. We're being intentionally divided. When we reject division, come together. We can take care of each other and take care of our own families. And people's action through sort of this very rigorous um, uh, experiment, it was one of my colleagues at Berkeley was one of the people running it, showed that this message of cross-racial solidarity in the face of intentional division was a very effective message for moving rural voters in the upper Midwest and also in the South. Desert Lancho will return after a quick message from our sponsors. When you do some of this work, one of the things that comes out in your book is that you believe people have misunderstood why dog whistle politics works. And and you touched on this earlier, but I, I, I want to draw it out a little bit more explicitly now, which is that there's a view of dog whistle politics and, and, and ideas that operates under this metaphor of a, a secret handshake, that I'm a racist and you're a racist and we use code words to let each other know we're on the same page, um, but other people can't hear what it is we're saying. And your argument from your research is that it actually doesn't work like that at all, that people hold contrasting political identities. If they hold some views that might be racist, they also do not want to be racist themselves, right? They, they, they believe themselves to not be racist, right? Think of Donald Trump uh, at the debate saying, I'm the least racist person in the room. And that the the utility of things like dog whistle politics is it it is a way of getting around people's desire to both be anti-racist um, and kind of hold to these traditionally you know racistly coded views, and that's practically been true in recent years. And that one of the things you're doing here is trying to activate multiple identities simultaneously. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about the about that and about the way you think about navigating contrasting or contradictory political identities in people? Such an important question. So most people are understanding dog whistle politics the way it worked at its inception. 
30s, 40s, 50s, there's pretty frank language about maintaining segregation, maintaining white dominance. But one of the great successes of the civil rights movement is that it created a national consensus that white supremacy was immoral. And what you then see is in the South, as early as 1960, 1963, 1964, Southern white politicians switch away from the language of segregation to the language of states' rights. And states' rights is a classic dog whistle because states' rights allowed politicians and their supporters to pretend that what they were concerned about was excessive federal intervention in state matters. When everybody knew that what was at stake was federal orders that states stop using violence and law and police to oppress and humiliate African-Americans. That is, in the mid-60s, if somebody said, you know, if a politician stood up like Barry Goldwater and said, I'm for states' rights, you know, and the, the voters who flocked to him most likely were saying, yeah, I'm for states' rights too, by which I mean continued white dominance and segregation. That dog was a politics in which the code is designed to placate a sort of a, a, a shifting national morality while allowing a sort of a secret handshake, a communication. We're on the same page here. We want continued segregation. We want continued white dominance. It doesn't work that way anymore. Now, dog whistling is designed to trigger racist fears and resentments that almost all of us have but in a way that allows not just plausible deniability on the part of the politician, but that allows those people stampeded by these fears to reassure themselves that they're not racist. And so I use the, the metaphor of a used car fraud, fraud, right? Like if you think, I mean, Donald Trump, he's a carnival barker. He's, he's, you know, he's a used car salesman, right? He's peddling a series of lies. He's saying to people, um, biggest threat in your lives? Well, that comes from anarchists and protesters and the radical left and caravans and illegals and rapists and murderers. When in fact, he's passing tax cuts for billionaires, rolling back environmental regulations and thus hastening climate collapse and turning the coronavirus into this culture war issue that is literally killing his followers while he tells them, the real threat in your life comes from, from these immigrants, right? It's, it's a used car sales tactic. It's a fraud. He's saying, if only you could defend yourself against cultural pluralism, you could make America great again. That's how dog whistling is working. And now it's very important that liberals understand that, this, that, that dog whistling is much more a used car fraud than a secret handshake, both in terms of how we think about the future of the country and also in terms of how we respond. Because if we continue to think that dog whistling is a secret handshake, then what we're saying is, hey, that, that 70 million people who just voted for Donald Trump, they know he's a racist. They just voted for a racist. They're racist too. We cannot build common cause with them. We do not have a future with them. You hear this very often from progressives, usually with a series of expletives about Trump supporters. and right, But, but it's rooted in this sense of like, they are categorically different people because they are racist in a very in a very condemnatory fashion. But that's not right. What's happening is something different. What's happening is Donald Trump is engaging in 
a strategy of triggering racist fears. And to reiterate, these are fears that almost all of us hold. And that's why when we test his message, union households, Democrats, African-Americans, Latinos are saying they agree with the message. Not so much if we, right, if we come up, if we have a better message, say they're not going to vote for Trump necessarily. But this message resonates with people because we do live in a society which is suffused with notions that people of color are lazy or undeserving or criminal or violent, suffused with beliefs in the basic goodness and innocence and deservingness of whites. And so that's just this, this ambient background in which we're operating. But here's the important point. Precisely because of racial justice struggles, precisely because of the advances of the civil rights movement, we also live in a society in which overwhelming majorities believe racism is wrong and believe that people deserve dignity no matter what race they are. And 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 this is the this is the part that as a race scholar, you know, it was a, it was a shock to me too. Like I did I just didn't get this. I, I, you know, before I started these studies, I'd been a race scholar for 15 years. I thought that what we were up against was a mountain of racism out there in the American voting public and how were we ever going to whittle it down. And it's true racist attitudes are pervasive. But it's also true that racially egalitarian views are pervasive and that many people, in fact, most Americans toggle between the two. We have split minds on race. People are simultaneously subject to racist fears, often unconsciously held, often absorbed by osmosis, And at the same time, consciously subscribe to racially egalitarian values. And the task for the left is to show people that their racially egalitarian values are the best way to take care of their families. Because what the right is doing, what Donald Trump is doing, is all the time he's telling the American public, the way to protect yourself is to vote in terms of your racial fears. Those people are dangerous. Those people are undeserving. Those people are taking away from you. Those people are disrespecting you. Vote your racial fears. That's how you protect yourself. And we need a message that says, on the contrary, it's your racial aspirations. It's your your sense that everybody deserves dignity, that, that racism is wrong, that color should be no barrier to getting to know somebody, to, to, to friendship, to being deserving. It is, it is building bridges across racial division that is not just a moral aspiration. This is a very important pivot, not just a moral aspiration, but the pragmatic way in which to build a political coalition big enough to make sure that we get government back out of the hands of the billionaire class and working for working families again. How different are the approaches that work with white voters and Hispanic voters on these issues, which is to say, There's a lot of demographic slicing in the way people think of the electorate. Um, We're talking here about Hispanic voters primarily. There's also an argument right now that Hispanic is not a useful voting category. And there's also a lot of variance within groups themselves. So when you test these messages and these ideas in different groups, is there a trade-off between strategy you would use to win white voters and, say, win Hispanic voters? Or is that a, a false binary that gets erected in the conversation? That's a false binary. On one level, we should understand that Latinos are already 
a multiracial coalition, that there isn't a single consensus among Latinos about who we are as a race or as a group, that there are a variety of views. So we are already a multiracial group. Now, think about two different, two different messages to this multiracial group. One thing we could say is, or three different messages, one thing we could say is, hey, Donald Trump hates Latinos, demeans us, we're part of the subordinated, build power with other subordinated people. That's going to work with people who accept that analysis. And in, and in the research we just did, that's about one in four Latinos. Then there's another message that says, ignore race altogether. Let's just focus on jobs. Let's just focus on the economy. Okay, but Donald Trump is busy saying all of these demeaning things about Latinos. We are under attack and Latinos are struggling to position themselves in terms of this status competition that is being promoted all the time. And if Democrats don't address it, then that sense of, wait, I want to be one of the good ones. I don't want to be associated with the illegals. I don't want to be associated with the lazy. I came here legally. I work hard. I, you know, I've anglicized my name, whatever it is, that's going to continue to be very powerful. And so the third message is we all want to take care of our families. Racial division is being used against us. Celebrate differences, build bridges with other racial groups. That's how you take care of your family. That's the message that performs best with Latinos as a multiracial group. And now to get back to this question about division between Latinos and whites, what we're talking about is how Democrats can strengthen what they themselves already are, a multiracial coalition. And the way to strengthen a multiracial coalition is to use a message that specifically says the best route forward for all of our families is by building bridges across racial lines. That is, it's the same message. And I think that that's one of the great strengths of this race class approach. You don't need to have one message about class for whites and one message about racial justice for people of color. In fact, we know those messages aren't all that compelling. A, a class-only message for whites leave whites still wondering, where am I in this status competition? What is the real threat in my life? And a racial justice message for people of color, partly it runs into the problem of folks not wanting to be associated with groups that are demeaned, but partly it's, listen, a lot of folks of color want to hear the class message too. What works best for whites and for Latinos, and let me add also, this is the strongest performing message in the African-American community as well. Stronger than a racial justice, stronger than a sort of a fight white racism type message, is a message that says, whatever our color, wherever we come from, we want to take care of our families. Some folks are intentionally dividing us. We need to build bridges across racial lines, demand that government works for working families. That single message is the most powerful message, whatever racial community you're looking at, African-American, Latino, white, uh, and, in, and in separate research that was done on race class, uh, uh, we did this among Asian-American Pacific Islanders as well, uh, Native Americans as well. This is the single most powerful message right now. And, it, and it's, a, it's a unified message, unified in the sense that 
It fuses issues of racial justice and economic populism, and also unified in the sense that you do not have to, and indeed should not, segment American voters by race in terms of the message that you're delivering, because it's a message of cross-racial solidarity that all communities respond most positively to towards. I think it's a good note of optimism to end on. So I'm going to ask you what's always our final question, which is what are three books you would recommend to the audience? Well, let's see. I would start with a book for historians. Eric Schickler, he's one of my colleagues at Berkeley. He wrote a book in 2016 called Racial Realignment, The Transformation of American Liberalism, 1932 to 1965. And this book is incredibly important because there's a story that many Democrats tell themselves. And that story is social democracy was doing just fine. Social democracy produced the New Deal. And then along comes the civil rights movement and we're dragged into supporting civil rights. And that becomes a wedge issue and that eventually breaks the New Deal coalition. And it's actually a risk to social democracy for a working party to invest too heavily into civil rights. And that's wrong as a matter of history. What Schickler shows is that even though the New Deal overwhelmingly helped whites, was cabined by racism in terms of what it was willing to do for African-Americans, nevertheless, African-Americans were better off under a democratic, under democratic New Deal type uh, governments and moved into supporting the Democratic Party. And since the, since the late 1930s, Schickler shows, a coalition of African-Americans, white working class, liberal whites, and other groups, including Latinos, were essential to an effort to get both social democracy and civil rights. That is, they've been fused since the late 1930s. And the, the, the Democratic Party is frankly, distance itself from both. When it moved away from civil war or civil rights as a way to insulate itself from dog whistle politics, it also moved away from social democracy. And if we're going to have a recommitment to social democracy, it must be one that is also takes seriously human dignity, um, as civil rights concerns, and that is rooted in a multiracial coalition. So that's one. Another book I'd recommend is Francisco Cantu's book, The Line Becomes a River. Um, so Francisco Cantu, a, a Latino who joins the Border Patrol, wants to understand the Border Patrol, wants to understand what's happening within the culture of the Border Patrol, eventually leaves because of the racism there. Um, the book is beautiful. It's, it's lyrically written. It's, it's um, uh, incredibly insightful. And it's very humanizing. It talks to us about the the complexities of Latino identity on the border, the drive to locate oneself as belonging, the uh, belonging in the United States, um, the way in which belonging itself is often tainted with racism against others, racism against African-Americans, but also racism against, against other Latinos. It's so important in terms of this, this idea that sort of, you know, Latinos exist as a monolith. It's like, no, not at all. We're as complex as, as, as every other group. The last book that I'd recommend is one that is just, it's a, it's a joy to read. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, 
part of what's fun is just the writing, you know, what a troublemaker he was, was as a kid and how do you square with, you know, this, this, you know, the things he did as a kid and the, you know, the, his, his public persona now. But the reason I'm recommending it is because it is the easiest, the clearest explanation of racism as a divide and conquer strategy. And, and it's so important, I think, for, for your listeners to get their heads around this concept. In some ways, it's easier to think about it, to see it in the South African apartheid context. But, you know, he, you know, South Africa, when you get the apartheid government in the 1940s, it's a very small minority of whites arrayed against all of these Africans. And so what they do is they say, well, let's let's shatter the solidarity between these different groups. Let's intensify the sense of group conflict. Let's institutionalize it. Let's make it part of uh, the fabric of society. And, And Noah's, I think, just brilliant in the way he reveals the intentional fabrication of group conflict. And that's what's happened here. That's what's happened here. And it's so, it's, it, and in some ways, you can use that lens to say, that's what they've been doing. We are so badly divided in the United States, not because we are naturally at each other's throats, but because powerful elites have sought advantage in stoking and in institutionalizing group conflict and distrust. And the implication of that is immediate. If we actually want to save our democracy, our society, the the climate, we must rebuild social solidarity. We must rebuild social solidarity. Ian Haney Lopez, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you to Ian Haney Lopez for being here. Thank you to Russia Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing. These are client shows of Vox Media podcast production. 